This podcast is brought to you by absolutely no one. The Bold and the Beautiful podcast with Dave Vella. Who the hell is Dave Vella? Welcome to the podcast, beautiful people. Have I got an interesting guy for you to meet today? I've known him for about 15, 16 years or so. In fact, I was the uh, MC at his wedding and my son calls him Uncle Matty, a colourful character with an even more colourful past. He took rugby to the United States, that's right, rugby, some 30 years ago, playing for a startup university team in San Diego. But his love for travelling saw him board a plane for anywhere and a chance meeting with a man named Carlos took him absolutely everywhere. He became a gem smuggling gypsy, traveling from India to Thailand to Hong Kong, all around the place with a backpack full of illegal gems. Eventually, he worked in real estate. He lost his fortune in the global financial crisis, and so he jumped on another plane, this time to Thailand, to get away from it all and de-stress. And as so many Australians, in fact, so many tourists do in Thailand, they grab a motorbike to travel around in. Well, he had a motorbike accident and a real doozy of an accident indeed. He ended up in intensive care in hospital for three months. Broken back, fractured skull, punctured lung, broken ribs, and a bunch of other broken bits and pieces. He has released a book called Crazy Shit in Asia, and it's all about how stuff can go astray when overseas. He also hosts a breakfast slot on community radio on uh, Byron Bay's radio station, Bay FM. And I'll put links in the episode notes for you to check it out if you want to. Right now, though, let's meet this man. It's time to meet my very beautiful guest, Matt Towner. Matt Towner, you've had a big life, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> You've had a big life. Yes. I, I can't seem to do anything small. You know? uh, I, I try. And, and the older I get, I'm trying. But yeah, it's, it's been a roller coaster and it seems to continue. One of the, um, one of the biggest things that amazes me, if, and I know we sort of chatted that we're going to start on something different, but mm. I, I, I just am blown away and I'm really intrigued about you being a gem dealer. Gem dealer. Like I've, I've done some crazy jobs in my life. <laughs> and... But being a gem dealer and travelling around the world doing it, I just think it's very, it's, it's just very saucy. I don't know. It's just got something really intriguing about it. It, it, it was. It was. I um. Yeah. I was. I was born in the bush and went to went to boarding school and then university. My parents begged, borrowed, never stole to give my brother, my sister, and I a really good education. And I think they aspired for me to be a doctor or a lawyer or something, but um, I was the first town to ever finish a, a university degree, but I didn't even stay for the hats in the air thing. I was 21 do years old. Do they still old. do hats in the air? They, they do, did in those yeah. days, so that's what, 20 something, nearly 30 years ago now, exactly 30 years ago. And, um, but yeah, I, I got contracted to play rugby for San Diego, jumped on a plane as quick as I could, got out of Australia, and uh, which sort of again horrified my parents at the time. But uh, then literally I was gone for three years and left a private schoolboy rugby player, came back a long-haired gem-dealing gypsy, smuggling stones all over the world. So hold on, you, you went over to San Diego to play rugby? Yeah, that, 21 that must years have been old. before the day. What did they even know about rugby? Well, was? that was the beauty of it. In those days, if you were any good at rugby, the, 
they were Americans were really just trying to learn. And because it was, wasn't a professional sport, they couldn't actually pay us. But we got a house on the beach in San Diego, five Aussies, to play for San Diego State University. Wow. And literally we got the keys to the city. We were 21 years old. We didn't have to work. They were feeding us and giving us anything and everything we want. And we were literally treated like celebrities. It was quite... Because rugby was really interesting in those days because American football, you either you had to play professionally or not at all. So rugby fit this gap of people who'd finished school or university and then they wanted to keep playing a, a sport, but they didn't want to be a professional gridiron player. Mm. So rugby was very social. So I went from playing club rugby in Australia and even at the schoolboy level, at, at pretty high levels, where that we'd we'd have to, you know, we'd train three nights a week. The night before the game, you you know, you were very focused. No, you know, the whole thing was focused. And over there it was the opposite. We'd go out the night before a game, have a big dinner and party, and then we'd go and play rugby in all these exotic places: Las Vegas, Palm Springs, L.A. And um, then the whole stadium at the end of the game would come down onto the field. We'd still be in our gear, in rugby gear, and there'll be already be a band and kegs of beer and a party. Would wow. it was all about a party? Wow, that's unreal. It was it was a very different style of rugby, yeah. but yeah, loved it. How how is rugby has rugby taken at all in America now? I don't think it. Yeah, it, well, the last Rugby World Cup, the, the American Eagles did better than they ever have before. They're slowly getting there. Yeah. Um, it, again, it is much more a social game. It's, it's very big following in America in that in that sort of social element. They don't. It's probably again still not as serious as American football yeah. is. So, it's um, well, American football and baseball are their two oh, national yeah, games. Totally, yeah. They're and just, again, they're like religions, yeah. really. Um, and the money that's behind American football, even college football. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's yeah. no there's no money for the college football players because they're not allowed to be paid, from what I understand. Yeah. But the money that the collegiate football generates yes. is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, totally. That whole industry, which is an industry in itself, you know, mm. you get, you even, as, a, as a, an outsider, you look at the Super Bowl, the spectacle that that is, is yeah. and the, the, the money that's generated by that one game, you know, the advertising just yeah, to, to get a slot in there is out of control. I just love it how the Americans call it the world championship for football. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're but, the only ones that play the game, yeah, but yeah, yeah. You know, whoever wins the Super Bowl are called the, uh, the world champions. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because again, I do know that, you know, a mate of mine who was went from rugby to playing American football, and there have been a few successful Australians playing in America mm. in that league, but um, but he was even playing here. There is a fledgling grin iron scene in Australia, but again, that's been, what, 30 years since that started, mm. and it's never really taken off. And I think it's I'm, very different. That, Americans don't call it grid iron. We call it grid Yeah, we call it grid iron, yeah, which I, again, that I'm being showing my age. I don't think I've heard that word for a long, no, long time. No. It's just American it's football. American football, yeah. But it's a really complex game. It is, I got into it a few years, probably about eight years ago, when I first moved to Byron. I got into American football watching it on TV. Yep. Um, I just started watching a weekly game and then I started sort of getting a bit, oh, okay, I like the way these guys play. And I started following those guys and got really interested and I started to understand the plays. Once you understand the plays and the psychology behind the plays and what they're trying to do, as you said, it's super interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, it really is. It's it's a coach's game even mm. more than, than a player's game. because it's, it's all, a coach's almost, chess game. Totally. That's what I was just yeah. going to say. It's so like that. And, you know, more than rugby league or rugby union, um, the plays, you know, they're, they're really complicated plays. And exactly, they're using every player like a chess piece. Yeah. 
And they've got that, um, for, you know, for people that don't know, it's they've got an offensive team and a defensive team. And at certain times, they'll take the whole team off. Totally. And the defensive team comes on. Yeah. And then they do their thing for a few minutes and then they go, okay, blow the whistle, time out, boom, that yep. whole team comes off and the next one comes on. And again, watching that game, like every game has changed so much, everything's so much more professional. Now, when I was playing rugby 30 years ago, you know, there was a legendary um, prop forward back in my day, Stan Pilecki, who my father actually played with. Stan was a legendary Australian rugby player. But in those days, and he played 100 tests or something for Australia, but he used to smoke ciggies at half time, um, which you, obviously you couldn't get away with today. Stan's an absolute character, still alive today, great man. But um, when I went to America, um, guys would tell me about, you know, the gridiron scene over there. It was like literally they were going in the change rooms getting pumped up with anything and everything. There were just no rules. Wow. It was out of control. And the money in that game, you yeah. know, they talk about uh, now, of course, I'm sure there's drug testing of all sorts. Yeah. But. Well, I think the same was even with, um, uh, you know, the National Rugby League here. Like you look back in the 80s with the likes of, um, you know, George Paponis, um, um, all, all the guys that played in the 80s and the 70s, they were all drinking beer, you yep. know, straight after the games. They were drinking yep. you know, out the night before, they were partying. Yeah. But most of them, even though they were playing professional football in the NRL, it wasn't called the NRL back then. Um, what was it called back in the 70s and 80s? It was called, um, oh, I can't remember what, yeah, what, what, what yeah. it was called back then. Yeah. But they were all, they all had normal daytime jobs. Yeah. So oh, they yeah. all had daytime jobs, also getting played to play footy, and they were partying pretty hard. Yep. And um, and then someone wrecked it and became all professional. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that was, was sort of, that, that was the thing with leaving Australia, this private schoolboy rugby player straight out of university and going to San Diego, five of us Aussies, all in one house on the beach, given the oh, keys crazy. to the city. Yeah, that was the end of my rugby. It just became one big party to the point we would go to tournaments. Um, so we went to one at Santa Barbara State University where there was like, 20 teams, or actually that was a really big one, that was probably 50 teams from all over America, all camping on this campus. Wow. And it was just a party. At night there were just bonfires, big barrels of magic mushrooms, and everyone was just going nuts, really American style. Americans do know how to party, my God. They do everything and, on... Uh, uh, and I wish they all could be Californian girls. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it was just out of control. So we're 21 years old and in our prime, and, and I remember at one stage we were first game on the, on the must have been the Sunday, and as a whole team we made a pack because basically we'd been up most of the night we all just slept on the pitch all in our gear so when the ref came on he just woke us all up we were all just lying around the <laughs> then we got up and played and there were guys i remember on the sideline passing people joints it was just very california oh, rugby wow. it was so loose and cool but i could never go back then to because then I was, I was supposed to go to england and play professional rugby again and that was like nah i'm, I'm on the party uh, bag and so is now. that is that what led you into the gem dealing yeah i basically then when I finished that season in San Diego, I traveled all through America, and um, then I ended up uh, in, uh, in uh, Miami, and by that stage I had no money left, um, but I still had an onward ticket. So I jumped on a plane to, to London, and that's when I was supposed to go and play rugby. I'd already had this job lined up, um, working in a pub in London, the Highbury Barn. So I went there, but um, went, yeah, no, no thanks to the whole professional because it was very opposite. I played one game in London and it was the total opposite. It was not, it wasn't <laughs> about fun. It was back, it was 10 times more serious than even what I'd been pl playing in Australia. So I was like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And yeah. I, so I just sort of ran this pub for about six months, cast myself up again, and then traveled all the way down through Europe. 
And um, I met this crazy Portuguese guy in the Greek islands, well, in Athens at first, working in this market. So I was walking through and this crazy character, larger than life. And he had this great trick, which I realized later was a trick, but he was very good at it. So he could basically see, which I think I can do now once you've traveled enough, he could see people walking down the Monasteraki markets and he could pretty much tell by the swagger, by the style, by the, you know, what sort of nationality it was. And at the time I was with a, a girlfriend who was Danish and he was like, hey, Australia, hey, Denmark. And you're like, what the? And so he'd draw you into his stall mm. with this amazing knack. And then he, he could literally, you know, they say he could sell sand to the Arabs. He would not only be selling them sand, he'd sell them all the stones, the gemstones, the jewellery off his whole stall. He yeah. was unbelievable. But once he'd sucked you in, you know, I realised later, it didn't matter whether he was right or wrong. He was just creating a conversation. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, we got on famously and then we ended up, you know, going out and partying with him that night. And then sort of three days later, I sobered up and I was in Thailand smuggling gemstones back and forth from Asia to Europe. And up, I did up that. Up the butt? <laughs> no, 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 again, different world. In those days, we would carry 60 kilos of stones what? in and out. Yeah, again, 9-11 changed everything. But in those days, you could pretty much so walk what, what, through what airports. What years are we talking? We're talking well, like I left early Australia 90s? in 89, or early 90s. Yep. So it would have been 91, 92. I did that for 10 years, though. But, um, yeah, I, we, I remember the hardest thing, my rugby training came in well because we'd have 60 kilos full of stones. We'd have no luggage. But Carlos had this great trick. He'd put his... Um, his uh, soiled underwear on the top in case customs did open the, the bags because they would always nice. turn them straight off. Yeah. But um, rarely would you get open. So the hardest part, though, was was getting to the turnstile and you'd have to literally do a cling and jerk to get 60 kilos on your back. Sometimes I'd have bruises on my arms just from doing the cling. And, and then you just walk like a backpacker um, straight through do the whole customs control and then get to the taxi and offload the 60 kilos. We'd basically, you know, there'd be 20 grand's worth of gemstones. We'd sell them for 60 grand and then jump on a plane and fly back again. So did you have did forth, you have someone that would buy the whole lot or were you selling them individually? A bit of both. The difference, because this is before the internet. So whether it was, was customers and or jewellers all over the world, the only way they could get diamonds, sapphires, rubies. Um, we started more with, with semi-precious stones. Once I got into the precious, you, can, you, know, you could literally carry $100,000 worth of stones just in your top pocket. But, mm. but they, they couldn't get, you couldn't just buy, now they can just buy off the internet. So yeah. the gem dealing gypsy is gone. Yeah. But in those days, those jewellers would love to see us coming through the door with backpacks full of stones because that's how they got all of the jewellery stones that they needed yeah. rather than them having to fly to Asia. So we would, for example, go to Thailand, get sapphires, Burma, get rubies. India had a, such a wider range of stones, you could get anything and everything. Um, so how many, how many trips would you do, say, a month or a year? I ended up doing this cycle where I would, I would come back to Byron Bay. Uh, Byron became my home. Well, for the first three years, I, wasn't, I was never planning to come back to Australia. I was sort of running away from, from Australia. Um, in fact, when I was in London, if I heard Australian accents in a pub, I, I proudly never went to Earl's Court. Well, so what, what, was, uh, what were you hating so much about Australia? I think I, because I grew up in, in the bush and then I went to boarding school in Ipswich and I think I, that sort of bogan Australian 
background. I was really yeah. running from that. There so. is nothing worse than when you are overseas hearing an Australian accent sometimes. It can drive you a bit nuts. Yeah, to get, you know. And then some people find it very so, Totally. Very I have friends who, who lived in London and they love the whole Earl's Court vibe. I, I, if I was, if I'm travelling still to this day, I want to experience the local culture mm. and meet local people and do those. Who, I'm not going there to meet Australians and hang out with Australians. <laughs> And so I was really running away from that and I wanted to experience other things. In fact, yeah, if I heard Australian accents, I'd be like, have no English, no English. Yeah, I was not uh, trying to meet Australians. Um, but, um, so, so, how, so how often were you, were you coming back and forth? Yeah, it's, it, it got to a point then, as soon as I did open my mouth, especially to a jewel, they'd be like, oh, Australian, have you got opals? And I'm like, no, I've got, I've got everything else. I've got every other stone you can imagine from Asia. Yeah. But I ended up going, in the end I gave in. I thought I've got to come back to Australia. So after about three years. So then I was doing, I would do Australia and I'd do the summers in Byron, which I loved. Everywhere else in Australia was too Australian for me. But Byron, you still felt like you were traveling, yeah. especially in those days, 30 years ago. But then I'd go out to the opal mines and I'd literally get opals. So I'd leave here with a backpack full of opals. I'd get to Thailand and I'd start trading opals for okay, sapphires. Okay, so you were, taking, you were taking the gems back over every there, country. like Australian ones back Th over this there. This is where I learned from Carlos very well. And he, he was a very well-traveled gypsy. So he'd already been doing it for 20 years by the time I met him and I'm 21 years old. And uh, well, by this stage I'm 22, I've done one season of rugby. But the trick of a gypsy is firstly, you're making money every day, whether it's a dollar or a thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, but every day you're making money somehow. Yeah. And you, you work out what you can take from one country to the next where you can double, triple, or quadruple your money. Because every country, especially with gemstones, every country has a stone that no other country has. Mm. So Australia produces 95% of the world's opals and the best quality. So you leave here with opals, you go to Thailand. Thailand produces the best sapphires in the world. So you start trading opals for sapphires. Mm. Um, Burma rubies, um, if you, then in India, because a lot of the stones from all over the world, rough stones, go to India, especially Jaipur is a gemstone city. And uh, so we basically would live in and out of Bangkok and Jaipur and go back and forth. And we would probably go back and forth between those two and Hong Kong, because China wasn't open then, so Hong Kong was like the, the, the gateway to all of the stones that would come out of China. And um, so we would probably do that little quadrangle when we were gathering stones. We'd do that probably every week for three months. Ching, 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 ching. We'd wow. be just flying, 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 flying. And again, doing the 60 kilos and back that, and forth. And no one ever checked back. your passport going, okay, dude, what yeah, are you it, doing? It was so loose in those days. Um, and um, I remember once flying from Bangkok to Amsterdam, which we would do all the time. We used to start then our, our season was Queen's birthday in Amsterdam every year, still to this day. Well, with COVID, who knows? But um, yeah, the Queen's birthday, she has this big, it's like the whole of Amsterdam is a flea market. Mm. But we would get there two days before you'd have to, to get a good place. So we always used to try to be as close to the famous Bulldog Cafe as possible because that was a real tourist destination. Was, was that a cafe that allowed... Um, yeah, well, smoking, all the cafes, yeah. And all, sort of stuff? all the cafes in Amsterdam did in those days, yeah. Because that was, I mean, obviously that was the Amsterdam. I mean, I only heard of Amsterdam and, and what you were allowed to do. I was like, I've always got to yeah, yeah, Amsterdam. Yeah. Mm. But now, obviously, it's all changing. You, you can do that anywhere in... Uh, 
California and most yeah. parts of America and all yep. around the world now. So I wonder how Amsterdam has um, suffered. From well, it's really interesting because I spent a lot of time in Amsterdam because that's how we'd start was it was do this, you know, we'd have our big market stall and we'd make like 20 grand in a weekend. Wow. So that was, and we're talking US dollars back then, 30 years ago, just from selling gemstones on the street in Queen's Birthday in Amsterdam. Wow. And so that would sort of kick selling them to all the stoners. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah they <laughs> love their crystals. But it's funny that you know this is a, a whole thing. It, it was an example of of what um, rules can do because the Dutch people, people who are born, bred, live in Amsterdam, don't abuse drugs because they see the the abuse. Mm. It's the foreigners that make a fool of themselves and, and stuff things up for everyone. Mm. Whereas, yeah, the, the Dutch people, because everything was so legal and so free and so open and talked about and tried and tested and used, they they, they thought it was ridiculous mm. that, that you would actually have a drug problem or you would mm. be an idiot. So it's really interesting that the countries um, like Australia, in many ways, who, who try to stop everything People are just going to do it anyway. So then they go behind the rules backs and then they do things <coughs> yeah. wrong and it's not... Well, that's almost... You can. That's a macro sort of level. You can take it down to the micro level where you look at raising children. And so mm. many times, and, and as a dad myself, and I speak to parents about this all the time, and it, it seems to be the kids that, had, that were raised with, in, in, on a real simple example, chocolate, that yep. had chocolate in the fridge, it was always around, they actually... Yeah, they, they never had it. They weren't. They don't abuse it. They don't abuse it. Yeah. And, they, and to this day, as adults, they don't abuse it. Yep. But you see, kids that you know were told, no, you can't have sugar, you can't have that, no, yep. blah blah blah. They're the ones that you know, like yep. secretly try to get it. Alcohol was the same. Yep. Kids that had alcohol around from their parents, and maybe their parents even allowed them to test it and try it in the mm. in the safety and comfort of the home. Um, or same with marijuana. They're not the ones that are abusing it later on in life. It's the kids that were restricted from it that have taken it to the next level because they had to do it behind the back. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And again, because it's it's so um, rare, when they do get it, they'll scoff they it. They stuff it, Whatever yeah. that is. And again, that, that's going from chocolate through to, to whatever it may be. And, mm. and that's the big problem I know that is happening now with festivals when we could have them pre-COVID. Hopefully they will come back. But in Australia especially, they were doing that so strict policing that, that kids were, were, were necking everything they could in the car park to try and get into a festival and then they're overdosing. Yeah. Whereas, you know, that they're going to do it anyway. Um, I think it, it's, it was one of my big things. I've sort of stopped now getting on my ba on bandwagons, but, uh, or what's the high horse, the soapbox. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, when I first wrote my book series and I first went to, well, not first went to Burning Man, it was the third time I'd been to Burning Man, but you see there sort of, an open and embracing environment like Amsterdam is, like Burning Man is, like California is. Um, you can see that a lot of the issues that we have uh, in Australia don't seem to be there as much because things are openly spoken about, dealt with, tried, tested, accepted. Mm. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot to be learned from that. Yeah. And you just mentioned your books because, yep. I mean, you have had some You've done some crazy shit in your life. I mean, just the gem dealing, that's just one aspect of, of, of Matt Towner. Um, but you've spent a lot of time in Asia and it, funny enough, your book's called Crazy Shit in Asia. <laughs> yeah, that, I, at first I didn't want that title. I got picked up by an international publisher and they, they sort of then, once you get picked up by an international publisher, they sort of take over. You have to sort mm. of take a backward step. 
And when they first, I said... So did they uh, have control of the name, did they? Yeah, they chose the names of both books. So the first, I originally created the book series as Traveller's Tales. Yeah, Adventure that's right. I remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, um, which I was self-publishing. And then I, uh, because I, I have a background in real estate, uh, I, of course, and again, don't, not doing any of my halves or small, I found out the biggest gem show, uh, not gem show, uh, book fair because I'd done so many gem shows, I've done so many real estate expos, I thought, okay, where's the biggest in the world? So it was Frankfurt, Germany. I flew to Frankfurt um, to the book fair. Um, I got there, I, I'd done a bit of a deal to try and um, meet with publishers. There's 8,000 publishers from all over the world in these big sort of stadium you know, halls, um, and it goes for a week. But I didn't have any contacts, any bookings, any anything. So. I went and printed uh, postcards with the most eye-catching photo of me, which is when I was in my gem-dealing jitsu days. I remember days, that photo. And I'm yeah. in Manali in Did India. Did you have long hair there as well? Very yeah. long hair. I looked like a cross between a cowboy and an Yeah, Indian. you had a cowboy hat on. Yeah, yeah. covered in jewellery. And the yeah. background was a whole marijuana plantation yeah. in Manali in India. So that was on one side. On the back was basically just my elevator pitch. That you know, I've smuggled gemstones all over the world. I had a motorcycle accident in Thailand. I basically died, came back from the death, and I'm lucky to be alive. And now I'm a bionic man. And and basically, I letterbox dropped. So every day I would walk up and down the aisles and just drop at every publisher from all over the world my postcard because I didn't have any appointments or contacts or anything. Just trying to get a bite. And everyone said, "Yeah, you, you'll never happen. You can't do it. You know, this crazy Aussie. What are you doing?" And day three, I got a phone call uh, from New Holland Publishers saying, we got your postcard on our store. We're very interested. Um, we'd like to talk. So, yeah, they picked up uh, the book series, uh, London, New York, Sydney, um, in their offices to take it global. And But then they changed the book series from one book to two books, from Traveller's Tales to the first book being Abroad, Broke and Busted, and the second Crazy Shit in Asia, which... Um, yeah, at first I was like, you know, my mother has never sworn in her life, so I was, you know, she'd be horrified that there's even swearing in the book, let alone on the cover. But, yeah, their whole thing was, you know, that shock value and it jumps out of airport bookshops. And, yeah. and, and, um, and that was the whole thing, and, and it did. It, it did work uh, for a while, unfortunately, then pre-COVID, of course, all airport bookshop shop, all, yeah, all shut. shit. Yeah, everything's shut and, and sort of even sending books all over the world was hard, so everything's just been now in lockdown and... And, um, and I've realised that, you know, the amount of work I've done, because before that I was travelling all over the world promoting the book series. Myself, I probably spent a hundred grand um, promoting the whole book series. You know, I went to Frankfurt Book Fair, then I went to, to Burning Man, went all over America again, you know, just basically doing what I did with Gemstones, but doing it with books, going yeah. to bookstores and introducing myself. And it's a hard slog, isn't it? It's a really hard slog. And then, but when you've signed with an international publisher like that, I know musicians go through the same issues. I'm getting $2 a book. Basically, you're getting screwed. Totally, and they're selling for $32.95. Yeah. Um, and, and so what was your experience like with the, with, you know, the, the publisher? You know, yeah. Like from, say, way to go. Did they, did they embrace you? Did they take you on as, you know, like, yes, we're going we're yeah. to do this for you. We're going to help you out. What I've realised, and I do understand both sides. I've always been like that. I'm always the man in the middle, in, in, whether it's a, in arguments with, with friends or family the, or, the, or the bigger picture of life. Um, so I understand both sides, but they're a bit like a, because again, part, part of my background is real estate. You know, I, I always say I took, my career path's been I took Australian opals all over the world, then Australian wine, then Australian real estate. And that mm. was sort of my 20s, my 30s, my 40s. 
um, until my accident. And then basically, uh, yeah, the world stopped for a while there. But um, then the, the publishing thing, they're a bit like a real estate agent or a bad real estate agent in that um, they'll tell you everything you want to hear to get you to sign the deal. When they first were, were, were wooing me from the Frankfurt Book Fair, you know, we're going global and there's going to be a TV series and, you know, the whole thing and they're throwing all this money at it and it's going to be huge, it's going to be great, sign here. You get $2 a book and they get the rights to everything. And, um, but then, you know, at, and at first they do do that. So basically there was, I was doing, you know, radio interviews every day, you know, there, there was promises of TV interviews which never eventuated. Um, and then I started to see the writing on the wall that, okay, you know, that was one tick or cross against what they'd promised. But then you realise that, you know, that first month they're throwing everything at it. But then, you know, the month, the second month, the third month, you almost start bringing them up and having to remind them who you are because mm. they've moved on to the next book. Mm. But I understand from their point of view that they're shooting fish in a barrel because they want that big seller, that bestseller overnight as well, the J.K. Rowlands, which is is one in a billion. Mm. You know, for anyone out there thinking about writing a book, I still, for me, I was doing it as a cathartic exercise anyway. It was, yeah. a, it was something, you know, to, to deal with my post-traumatic stress from my accident to get out the mm. story of, you know, basically, you know, death being a, that situation, to talk about it was, and to write about it, and then to share that, and then, to encourage other people to share their stories. Mm. Um, so that's sort of how it works Well, you've actually got a lot of, um, there's a lot of collaborators with, yeah. with your books, isn't so, there? Again, I think from my rugby background, I've always been a team player. Yeah. Um, and that's really something rugby taught me. So anything I've done in my life, um, even the gem dealing gypsy stuff through to to the wine dealing, to real estate, was always a team effort. I've always mm. been a, like that. So the book series, when I got the deal, um, I said, well, you know, I've got a lot of friends all over the world who have incredible stories like mine. Um, survival, whether it's from they've been travelling somewhere and ended up like me nearly dead and, and in a hospital or they've ended up, you know, in jail or in in love or whatever it may be. So the idea was adventure travel Are you stories. comparing love to being in jail? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> or nearly dead. Yeah, all of that. Yeah, you can be. Yeah, you're very cathartic in many ways as well. Um, <laughs> love and hate. <laughs> hey, so you, you've mentioned, obviously, um, that book, yeah, we were just saying, you've got a lot of collaborators and there are people with different stories, but you, you were saying that your story and one of the reasons behind doing the book was to, you know, to share your story, to help you mm. deal with, you know, what happened to you. Mm -hmm. um, you so let, let me sort of paint the picture. You're in, you're in Thailand mm. and you're on a motorbike, which so many travellers do, so many Aussies do. Mm. Everyone goes over there, everyone's riding bikes over there. Yep. Um, you had no helmet on mm. um, and there's just literally a thousand bikes going crazy. The, the road rules over in Thailand. Well, there aren't any. Aren't, yeah. I was going to say the road, the <laughs> there road are no rules, rules at all. Which, which again is what people like me, travel adventure seekers, you love, love it. that. You but, love it. It's, but, it's, yeah. it's freedom. It's, 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 and, it's and something I special. I'm reminded myself, I was 40 years old thinking I was 14. I was an idiot. Were you drinking? But, I, was, I was basically, it had a couple. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, the thing was, it was a bit of everything. It was, um, I needed a good slap. It was... To give you the backstory, at that time, it was, it was the middle of the global financial crisis. Um, some mates and I had bought a property in Byron Bay, literally the day before the GFC hit. Um, 
Um, That's right. You bought that. We bought a $3 million property. That massive acreage. Oh, yeah. incredible property, which yeah. is still to this day overlooking Byron Bay, 50 acres, views from, I remember. from Byron Bay to the Gold Coast. And, and basically, I was, I, was having, I was in a great place in my life. I was a successful real estate agent in Byron Bay. I just bought this incredible property, still to this day, one of the jewels in the crown. But we were all sort of gypsy type people. We weren't that stable as such so when the gfc hit um you know we tried to fight, hold it out for a long time and i was i was working as hard as i could and one of the other guys that was was in the philippines at the time another guy was in tahiti and basically it got to a point where the bank just said you've got to sell this property you can't hold this property anymore the bills were mounting um and that three million dollar property we had to take to auction um, unfortunately, and it sold for 1.6 million, which is today it'd be worth 20 million dollars. It's it's just unbelievable. But uh, that's one of those the golden rules of property investment. You should never sell. Mm. But so yeah, well, I was pretty much I was on down. Um, I'd gone from making you know living in this beautiful town that I used to sell gemstones on the street as a hippie mm. to being a real estate agent making 150 grand a year. GFC hit that next year. I made five grand, which I'd never made that little in my life. I was making you know. So much more than that, even just selling stones on the street. Mm. Um, sometimes I'd make that in a day. So yeah, I was I was struggling. So I just had to get away. Again, my escape has always been travel. I mm. love travel more than life itself. So the guys that were my partners in the property, we we all went to Thailand um, to sort of get away and just sort of get some space and get our heads straight before we all went insane or bankrupt or both. And uh, that I just wanted to get as far away from civilization as possible. So one of the guys and I, we got up really early. I think, don't think we'd even slept straight off the plane because we had a bit of a nightmare trip getting there with plane delays and all that, planes, trains and automobiles. And um, I, I've never been good at, at riding those Vespa things. I always, <laughs> I always want, a, want a motorbike. So I thought I'd hire one. <laughs> yeah. So I, got a, I have to have a dirt bike. Even though my mother, even though I grew up on a farm, my mother had a rule, no guns, no motorbikes. So yeah. we were the only kids in a primary school, 20 kids in the whole school that didn't have guns and motorbikes. Everyone had guns and motorbikes except us, which was kind of weird. But, and I understand her thinking because they're both very dangerous things. Yes. But one thing, you know, parents need to realise is, especially I, th I think most men, the problem was then as soon as I could, I, I was riding motorbikes. Well, it goes back but I had to, no experience. It goes back to the chocolate thing again. Yeah, exactly. It? That's exactly right. It's the chocolate thing. So, you know, I learnt riding motorbikes by hiring them on a deserted island in Thailand, you know, once a year and just wobbling my way mm. through the crazy traffic with no rules, with no helmet, with no shoes and, you know, having a few near misses and scrapes and getting a few gravel rashes. And, you know, that's how I learnt. But I still was a very, very competent rider. Mm. Uh, and again, it's, it's a bit like surfing, like learning guitar or anything. You don't think you can just do it for three weeks or three months, once a year and get good. You've got to do it all the time. You've got to do it every day. So anyway, I hired this bike. We got as far away as we could from civilization. So where were you? In, in Phuket. In Phuket, yeah. And then we rode all the way to Serinside, which again, this is 30 years ago. By this time, it's just palm trees and, and beautiful beaches. And then we found just this one little bar on the beach. And um, we thought we'd have a drink. Um, had a long island iced tea again, <laughs> not doing anything in my halves. But um, as the sun started to set, we thought, oh, we really need to get back to, uh, to where, you know, where we were staying you know, before the sun sets. And, but it's, you know, it's just so beautiful. You've got this beautiful sunset and a little bar and a thatched roof in the middle of nowhere. So anyway, we, we jump on our bikes and, you know, again, I'm just 
we're feeling so free, literally wind in the hair, no helmet, just board shorts, singlet, no shoes. And, and I was, again, being going way too fast, uh, being way too overcompetent or overconfident. Uncompetent. Uncompetent and overconfident. <laughs> and anyway, I came over this rise. I got a little bit of air. And um, as I looked down, I could still see it. There was, there was this pothole. And I can still feel the jar as I sort of came down and hit that pothole. And basically the front wheel totally screwed. The steering wheel went straight through my stomach. I rolled down a mountain. Sorry, the handlebar. Handlebar, st- yeah. Yeah, through your stomach. Yeah, I rolled down this mountain basically and I fractured my skull, my spine, my ankle, my knee, my shoulder, my elbow, broke three ribs, perforated my lung and had a brain hemorrhage in the middle of nowhere mm. on dusk Damn. in Thailand. And it was classic Thailand. Were you... Were you- how many other guys were you with? Just one. And yeah. was he in front or behind? He was behind. Um, by the time he got to me, there was, it was classic Thailand. Even though we're in the middle of nowhere, people came from everywhere. I have no idea where they came from, out of the jungle. Um, you know, village, local villages, obviously, because they'd heard, um, obviously, the, the crash. Um, by the time Dave got to me, he said, that, he said later that he didn't even want me to see his face because he didn't want to scare me, because I was in pieces, like literally. Um, everything was pretty much wide open. So I knew straight away that I'd broken my back. So I was lying on the ground, as this crowd of people around me, I just kept saying, my back, my back, you know, don't touch me. Mm. And um, then there was a guy in a uniform, still to this day, I don't know whether it was police or security or who it was, but he said, okay, okay, ambulance, ambulance. And just as I relaxed, uh, they picked me up and put me in the back of a ute, oh. a, a pickup truck. I was like, no. And yeah, I spent 40 minutes bouncing around in the back of that pickup truck um, with my head wide open. My eyes just kept filling with blood and they were wiping the blood from my eyes. I was that saying, you know, I went through the, the valley of the valley of death. It's uh for me, again, it went back to rugby. It was like when you play rugby, especially um, at those levels, you, you, when you run out onto the field, you, you're running through. They, they used to create a tunnel of people either mm. side. So you'd be running onto the field through a tunnel of people and often uh, the other way coming back. So you're all sort of, you know, after the game, you're shaking hands through that tunnel. So I was in the back of this pickup truck and just lines of people either side of me, my friends and family, sort of saying goodbye, basically, as I came in and out of consciousness and they were waving smelling salts under my nose to keep me coming back. Because it's, it's a real danger to, to, yeah. to get yeah, unconscious. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it? I was definitely, uh, yeah, on that, whatever that ebb is between life and death, that's, mm. that's I know where I was. And, um, and because really, I, there's no pain there. Even though I was in obviously is excruciating it, is it, pain. Is it because the pain is so intense that it becomes I, I think painless? so. Because I'd broken pretty much everything from head to toe on the right side of my body. Yeah. Um, but then they took me to a, a first a, like a public hospital because I have flashbacks of something like a Vietnam War movie, just blood and guts everywhere. And I, because I was still conscious and I, I had insurance and I could hardly speak, but I just kept saying insurance. Insurance, I have insurance. And then I, I woke up two days later in a five-star private hospital, oh, thank God. Um, and yeah, I'd been sort of in and out of comas and, and in and out of between life and death. And uh, they stitched me all up, but they couldn't operate until I signed 
basically, because I had a broken spine as well as, you know, my head, uh, everything. So, um, yeah, that, that was it. I spent three months in intensive care in, in Thailand. Thailand. Wow. Uh, luckily for me, which again is in my book series, in any of the seminar speaking, I do anything, I, I encourage people. Um, I keep joking, rather than ever going back into real estate, I should go into insurance because I had the sales pitch. <laughs> <laughs> Because I had travel insurance, which a lot of people still, I know people who travel without travel insurance, don't do it. Uh, I had travel insurance, they paid my 200,000 US dollar hospital bill. 200,000 US, three months intensive care in Thailand. And when I, I couldn't really speak, but um, when I could, I had to obviously make some serious calls. I didn't want to phone my family at first because I didn't want to worry them. How long till you phoned your family? It would have been probably a week, I think, once okay. I'd gotten through, once I knew I, well, it was still touch and go whether I could walk again, all of that sort of stuff. Um, you know, first it was life and death, then it was whether I could walk again, um, all of those sorts of things. But I spoke, a mate of mine was my um, insurance broker, financial advisor, so he'd set up all of my insurances for me, thank God. During the GFC, when I'd lost everything, um, I remember I kept ringing him. I'm saying, you know, mate, you know, I've lost everything. I can't afford this hundred dollars a month. Um, I can't remember it was a month or a week. I can't remember now. But these insurances that you've set up for me, and my father always has this great quote: "The salesmen are the easiest to sell to because we love a good sales pitch." But he used to say things to me like, "You don't know when you need it the most until you you don't know what you need until you need it the most." Yeah. Or he'd say all these really cryptic yeah, yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. I'd get off the phone going, "What does that mean?" Yeah. <laughs> He's so frustrated, but he just would not let me cancel my insurances. And now I buy him a case of wine every Christmas because he saved my life, that, that insurance, that, that hospital. Um, so, yeah, did you God. have um, Did you have a Thai doctor working on you or was it an American doctor? Uh, no, well, I had – that was the interesting – one of the calls I made was – so first it was my insurance broker and then to, I had to speak to my insurance company. And they said to me that, you know, 20 years before when I was – or 30 years before when I was first going to Thailand, they would have airlifted me straight out of there, back to Australia. Yeah, that's what I would have thought. But this is 10 years ago now. They said the reality is because there are so many motorcycle accidents in, in Asia, there's an Australian dies every day in a motorcycle accident. That's mm. just an Australian. So you imagine how many people from all over the world are going to Asia, hiring a bike that they hardly know how to ride and getting out on a road that's literally like a sea. Um, so... God knows the total number mm. of people that die every day. But um, he said that not only is there so many accidents, but also that medical tourism industry is now so strong. And there's a generation of doctors that have been trained. They're Thai, but they've been trained. They've gone to university in America or in Harvard, Oxford, here, there, right? and then they go back to Thailand. So they've got some of the best orthopedic surgeons in the world. Mm. So they said, we won't be flying you home, you stay there, you're better off there. Okay. And I couldn't, even three months later, I still, it was hard for me to travel anyway. Um, but yeah, they were incredible. And when I did come back, the, the service I got was out of control. But it was funny because it was medical tourism. I had my own, I was in a brand new hospital. Again, my luck, my whole life, touch wood, has been incredible. Um, I ended up, after going, you know, 
literally through life and death through that public hospital. I was in a private hospital. I had my own hotel room. It's like brand new. I'm one of the first patients in a five-star private hospital. But on the, so on the bedside table, there's like a menu for boob jobs and tummy tucks and, and lips and the whole bits. That's where they made their money. I was I, just... I heard they've also got some of the best of that as well. Like, yeah, that's where you go for boob jobs and lip that's jobs That's what this hospital was and, for. Yeah. Totally. I just happened to, because it also does emergency. I was, I was there. But yeah, the whole menu was there. That's where they make their money. I'm just, again, 200 grand, three months, not bad money. But it was, a, it was an incredible hospital. And literally, I had three different doctors working on me at all times. I had a whole team of nurses. They were so attentive. And the Thai people are so beautiful in that regard. But yeah, it was funny. Then when, with all due respect, I, I get airlifted then eventually, three months later, back to to Australia and I'm at the PA hospital in Brisbane, it was kind of the opposite. I remember I was still in a wheelchair at that stage. I think I sat in a waiting room for about six hours and then um, some big old grumpy matron came out and ordered me around and bashed me into walls. Well, it literally was, it was a very different, <laughs> different experience, experience than the beautiful five-star um, Thai hospital. <laughs> Take to me be back in, to Thailand. Yeah, yeah, to be in Brisbane with, uh, with Mama Matron um, slapping me around the head. Um, yeah, it, it's a very different experience. And, and obviously that experience, your, your insurance is, is still looking after you to this day? Yeah, well see, the travel insurance paid the hospital bills over there, but once I landed back in Australia, um, even though I was still in a wheelchair and basically I've got a metal spine, metal ankle, post-traumatic stress, um, you name it, uh, then tra travel insurance stops the moment I land. So then, luckily, my great mate and uh, financial advisor uh, basically had not let me out of all those insurances. I had income protection insurance. Oh, that's what you got. Okay. So that, uh, and this is a great advertisement for anyone um, to basically that now, because I'm considered uh, partially disabled, um, and, and literally I do still have issues every day that I have to deal with, whether it's physical or mental, and that's something I, for 10 years now, I've been dealing with and I still deal with. But um, yeah, I'm covered. It goes up every year. I think it's, I'm somewhere, at, I get about $8,000 a month um, from my income protection insurance to cover my costs of living, which thank God is, because I literally couldn't do it without that. Mm. I know a lot of people, sadly, and I try to help people now who've, um, who've had accidents, whether it's overseas uh, or, or in this country or any country, who have no insurance, and then they're in some way incapacitated to try and live just from whether it's an unemployment benefit, it's very hard in this day and age, mm. oh my God, especially if, if, like me, you had um, bought properties and accumulated assets and you're trying to hold down mortgages and car payments and everything else. So, um, yeah, I'm incredibly lucky for, for insurance. and I insure everything now to, to the maximum. <laughs> Even now, if my car's just broken down, so I had to get a, um, a higher car and they asked me about insurance. I, I insured it yep, to the yep, max. I want it. Yep, Absolutely up. to the max. Yep. And, um, and then someone just yesterday then ran straight into the back of me in a brand new hire car, oh. and someone's run straight into the back of it. Wow. So, and again, I just had to look to the heavens and uh, say, say thank you, <laughs> and I'm so glad I didn't skimp on the insurance. Hey, you, um, you touched on post-traumatic stress from the accident. Yeah. Um, what sort of stuff Yeah, th this is actually the, the first time I'm talking about this, uh, because it's something, again, in this day and age, any sort of mental illness has, has a real stigma. Mm. But yeah, I've noticed, and it, well, it's, 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 it's getting, I mean, I suppose the more we talk about it, the more yeah. that people discuss it, the more that we understand that there's so many different types of mental illnesses yep. and it can affect a broad cross-section of people. doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter, yep. you know, 
I, I think the stigma is becoming less and less. Yeah, and, and that's, I think, why. Because I've been um, hiding or fighting from talking about it, but I think the more people talk about it, the more accepted it becomes. Mm. And, and I've now, it's taken me 10 years to accept it myself and get out of denial. Because first, you know, I think with anything, I know with, um, with addictions, they say the 12-step program, I think the first is, is denial, then anger, then acceptance. Mm. I don't even know what the ones are beyond that because most people never get past those three. They go mm. around between denial, it's, anger, and stay, acceptance. Stay in the anger, yeah. And you have to get to acceptance before you're going to make any difference. Yeah. And so I've now... I think, I think another one's blame, isn't there? There's oh, always, probably, There's yeah. always blaming someone yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I've now come to my acceptance with post-traumatic stress, which is, is harder for me to deal with, interestingly, than obviously the metal spine, the metal ankle. Winters are hard for me. I don't do cold climates at all. <laughs> it freezes up. Yeah, totally. It's very hard getting out of the mornings. <laughs> Got to warm up yeah, the metal. Totally. So, um, but the post-traumatic stress, you know, it's like a hidden uh, thing. Um, you know, when I, got, when I was in then back from Thailand and I was then in... in hospital in Brisbane, I had to do all these tests again, you know, from x-rays, ultrasounds and scans and brain scans. And, and I was um, diagnosed with it with a mild brain damage from the accident. My comprehension and um, communication skills are perfect, but my mathematical and mechanical skills are impaired. Okay. Um, so that can be frustrating at times. Mm. Um, and it's just something I've had to learn to live with and not trust or rely on my mathematical or mechanical skills. I'm, I'm the worst handyman in the world. You know, that's why I get a hire car, I don't try and fix cars yeah. or even uh, do mathematical <laughs> equations. I use my calculator for everything. But um, what about though um, flashbacks and nightmares and, and things like that from the event? Do you, did you have those and yeah. do you still have them? No, I'm lucky in that regard. A lot of people do. I haven't had that. It's at mine, mine and what's been explained to me is you know, with all of us and where post-traumatic stress comes in really, it's f we have a fight or flight mechanism, mm. uh, you know, humanly in, in our culture, you know, from cavemen all the way to now, it was about fight or flight. Yep. When something happens like happened to me, and this happens a lot to, to soldiers, to policemen, to firefighters, when you, you're in that situation from the caveman confronting a dinosaur to, to me flying through the air and then breaking. I don't think cavemen were around at dinosaur time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're telling a porky there. But they, it, they might have been hallucinating it, cavemen. <laughs> <laughs> and that can be traumatic. Trust me. I I trust me. It might have been um, It might have been a bear. Yeah, that's right. A, a, a really big bear. He comes back and he's going, no, no, I swear. It was a fucking dinosaur. <laughs> That's how it started. Oh, you say dinosaurs never existed. It was all a conspiracy. So that, that came there saw a bear. Yeah, it was Jesus. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so uh, it's what the, with the fight or flight. What happens is so then what's been explained to me is flying through the air. My my fight mechanism was turned on like during flight. Yeah. So then it's very hard then to turn it off again. So it, it's. It's messed up, so your fight or flight mechanism. So now, another doctor explained to me, because again, being such an extremist, I have been to every doctor you can imagine. I've been to not only the physical ones, from God knows how many operations I've had, but then I've been to psychologists, psychiatrists, hypnotherapists, shamanic healers, crystal worshippers, you name it. I've, I've done it because I like to explore all of these things, mm. you know, looking at all of the different alternatives from, from the med medical ones to the medicinal ones to the alternative ones, from ayahuasca to, uh, to all sorts of different things I've tried. And um, it, it, it's been explained that if you... 
if you filled a, a water, a cup of water, you know, normally it would take one person to go from one to a hundred in terms of stress, you know, slowly, slowly, but I can go some, if a stressful situation confronts that flight or fight mechanism, it has no, no sort of filter now. So I can go from one to a hundred in two seconds. So you, get, you get stressed really I easy? Get, I can get, yeah, I avoid stress at all yeah, costs yeah. because if I do, it takes a lot to get me upset or angry, but if I do, I scare myself. Mm. So yeah, because I don't have that cap, that filter, I can bang, and yeah. then all of a sudden I'm in fight mode. Yeah, and, and and I don't want to go there. Yeah, yeah. So so what are you doing now to sort of to to monitor that and and sort of keep tabs on it? Yeah, I have a, again. I I have a I have a funny story, but I've I um I have a very twisted sense of humour. But I think I had that before <laughs> the accident. I've tried to go to back to work at times and we both know how stressful real estate can be. So I have a funny story that wasn't so funny. Uh, and again, that was, a lot of this could probably get me in trouble. But again, I have no filter anymore. Post-traumatic stress, Your Honour. <laughs> I so like, that's my disclaimer. I like no filter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I went back to work for a while. I've tried a few times in this 10 years to go back to work in real estate. Uh, one time recently, over the last few years, I was working for this developer on the Gold Coast and trying to go back to work again. And, and he was that classic Gold Coast developer, or developer anywhere in the world, that gives developers a bad name, gives real estate a bad name. He was just a compulsive liar, mm. which, which I just can't deal with. I'm the opposite of that. Just tell me how it is, tell it straight, spit it out. And it, it just was doing my head in, again, with post-traumatic stress, my God. It was driving me nuts, literally, to the point that at one stage, it wasn't my best moment, I threatened to shoot him in the head. and. <laughs> And I meant it. Uh, thank God we're not living in America where I could have <laughs> literally have gone to Walmart, bought yeah. a gun and done humankind a favour and taken him off the planet. But, um, you know, he, he had no, dis no respect for people, for the planet, for the environment. He was just that dodgy developer. And, yeah, I really lost it. I mean really lost it. And so when my insurance company, um, yeah, were talking to me about that experience, I, I was honest with them. I told them exactly that. I said, maybe going back to work's not good for me or anyone, especially not that environment. So, yeah, now, you know, my book series was a cathartic thing and I did it to help people. I still do the book series. Yeah. I now um, help Bay FM, the community radio station. So How's that I, going on Bay FM? Yeah, I just started during COVID because, um, because I can't travel. You know, travel's always been my, my thing uh, that's my therapy, really. Mm. Um, so, what do, you, what do you like most about working on um, community radio? It, the community, really. I, I'm very passionate about Byron Bay. Like I said, from when I left Australia, thinking I would never come well, back. You've been in Byron a long time. When did Thirty you first, years, wow. pretty much. I started coming here when I was going to university in yeah. Brisbane. Okay. And then I went overseas for three years, came back, and you know, everywhere else. I Australia mean, ba ba um, Bay FM is—it's mm. the heart and soul of. Yeah, and that's what Byron I explained to people. If we lose Byron Bay, we, if we lose Bay FM, we've lost yeah. Byron Bay. Yeah. Um, it's very alternative. I, I think one of their, um, or their catchphrase uh, is get an education in Byron culture, in Byron yeah. culture, yeah, and yeah. listen to Bay FM. Yeah, and the beauty of it is, you know, some people criticise Bay FM because you never know what you're going to get, but yeah. that's the that's, beauty oh, of Byron that's what's Bay. so good about it. And so you can have shows, you know, like mine, which is all about the music and, uh, and local artists and, and things like that, through to, you know, there's a whole Spanish scene, so mm. there's a Spanish show. There's, I've, I've listened to the Italian one. Yeah, and then, um, you know, there's... there's I, I love listening. There's a, there's a guy, I can't remember who, he's, who his name is, Shell. Hey, yep. Shell's place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and he's just got this real old 
cruisy sort of you know thing. He says some cheesy lines sometimes, <laughs> yeah. but um, he plays some really cool. I think jazz. I think is his, oh, yeah, his yeah. vibe. Yeah, I can't remember what day it is, but you know, every now and then, like, you know, he talks about you know, join me at Shell's place. And yeah, yeah. I just, I just love it. It's so. It's yeah, it's just, quirky. That's it's just what I quirky. Like. Yeah. And, and, and there's everything from classical music shows through to yeah, dance music shows. It's fantastic. Yeah, and so and um, so I'm really passionate about that now, which again, you know, is my passion project. Everything I do now is passion project. I feel very lucky and am very lucky to be alive and even, even lucky to have this insurance, which is a gift. Well, one so of the I thing, try to share. Yeah, one of the things I've, I've, I've said to you over the years mm. because you you do have this post-traumatic stress and yeah. you, you you are covered for insurance yeah until you're 65 yeah for income protection and you do keep trying to go back to work which is very admirable of you because you you want to you want to go back and do stuff and i just keep saying to you dude yeah, i know stop it, it. it i think the last time was yeah that last time was the last time um you know when you start threatening to shoot people you realize that it's probably <laughs> it's not yeah, i don't need it. <laughs> yeah. i don't need the stress of <laughs> that's going a back real to level because the there is there's stress. stress in work that is um and depending on what job you've got can mm. be can be um detrimental to you know to how you're living your life and you need to make sure that you're looking after your brain. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and serving the community and helping people as best you can. And some people are good at, at doing other things. That, you know, I always say, I, my big little brother, I, I have a brother who took the total opposite road to me. So I mm. was the, the same edu university educator, but then went gem dealing, gypsy, traveling the world. Um, and he, he's very focused. So mm. he uh, did a project management uh, construction degree. He's now a CEO so he, of a he's construction the, company. He, he's the favourite son of your mum and dad there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my brother and sister and we're total opposites, all three of us. So that, they get to have a mixed bag. So yeah. I think um, it was funny, actually, because my mother was uh, I mean, my mother's such a sweetheart. She's now the oldest survivor of ovarian cancer in Australia. 85 years old. She's been having chemo off and on for 15 years. Damn. And they told her she had three years to live. 15 years ago so she's a real fighter um, but yeah my brother you know he's a total opposite of me and you know he has a very stressful life very high pressure job you know when I uh, lost that property in Skinner's shoot in Byron Bay in the GFC I remember you know I had a nervous breakdown with Notion View this was again after my accident so the post-traumatic stress really kicked in then because mm. I'd lost everything again I'm 43 years old broke and single and I went back I had an apartment that I still had the lease on in Bondi overlooking the ocean, which a mate of mine had been living in. And so I went back into this ocean view apartment and I had a nervous breakdown with an ocean view. So I realized I was in trouble. Well, if you're gonna do it, you might yeah, as well exactly, do it. Yeah, exactly, that's my house. So <laughs> I realized one morning that I'd, I'd drunk two bottles of red wine and I'd smoked two packs of cigarettes and I was just pacing and chain smoking. And I realized I'd been doing that for about three weeks. I thought, this isn't really a good place to be. You know, and I, sometimes I was sitting in a chair. But how rocking. good was the view? Yeah, great view. <laughs> but I kept looking down, not up. Yeah. I, I would literally be in a chair at times just rocking, like in fetal position, curled up. So I thought, yeah, this, this isn't good. So I called to my, my big little brother. He's younger than me, but, you know, he's got that that big life and he handles it well in a wife, three kids, you know, travel. Two and a half cars. Was yeah, it two and a half that, kids? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Two, I guess. But anyway, it was funny. So I said to him, look, you know, this is where I'm at. I'm not, not in a good place. And, and he just looked me right in the eye and goes, don't you even start. I've got a high pressure job. I leave home when it's dark. I get home when it's dark. I've got a wife that doesn't stop spending money. I've got three kids and I'll be grey before you. You can put on a backpack and fuck off. <laughs> I was like, there's well, an idea. Yeah. And I was like, I was expecting a hug, but you're right, it's my shout. Let's go out. Yeah. And that sort of snapped me out of it. Yeah. And um, 
And I say that to anyone listening who's going through a hard time. Like really, the grass is always greener on the other side. Yeah. And wherever, whichever side of the fence you're on, whether you're lucky enough to have the wife, the kids, the big house, the big job, or you've got nothing, there's advantages at both sides of that coin. Advantages to both of them, man. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's when it started. And then I started looking, that's when I started first looking for help, sort of accepting that, okay, you know, I, I, I can't deal with, mm. with stress. So, um, yeah, that's when I started going to everything from ayahuasca ceremonies through to um, hypnotherapy was interesting. I think the first time I fell asleep, but uh, the second time I literally left my body. I was, I was looking down on myself. It was incredible. So what... what out of all those alternative therapies, everything mm. from you know acupuncture, ayahuasca, you name it, what have you found to be of the most benefit? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I really do think one of the things I did, I spent a lot of money trying all of these things. And are you a bit of a hyper? Are you a bit of a hypochondriac? You know, like yeah, do you yeah. just think shit? I've got something wrong with me. I've got to, you know, like now I've got that wrong. Maybe I'm that. Maybe I, I'm this. I think I think there's a uh, there's there's catch twenty twos in both of that, and I think it's becoming more prominent in our society. Because again, when in our parents' day, there was no diagnosis of of anything. Just yeah. just tough it up, get on with it. Now there's, there's letters now there's for so everything. Many, yeah, there's, and I keep joking. You know, I've got every letter of the alphabet except AIDS that I, I know. I don't think I've got AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, you name it, I've got it. ADD, ADHD. Yeah, yeah totally. All of those. Yeah, all in one, <laughs> all, just jumbled mess all of letters. All the disease. And- that's right. Yeah. I've got A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Uh, so, um, so what? Yeah, what did you find helpful? Um, you know what? Well, I really came after doing all these things. One day, I just realized you just. I just had this epiphany where you just dust yourself off and get back up. You realize that life's a big game of roulette, and that's what you got to do. You throw your cards back on the table, even if you lose everything. And, and I've done that now a few times in my life. And then now. You know, I was 43 broken single, I'm now 51, and I'm probably in a better position than I've ever been, both mm. emotionally, uh, financially, I remember, physically. I remember when you were 43 and single, and you were very, you were devastated that you were single. You, you <laughs> yeah, were, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You just really wanted to be in love and, and be with someone. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I, in my 20s, my 30s, even my early 40s, you know, I, I couldn't, I, I never would have been a good husband or father because, um, you know, I was such a gypsy. I, I just was ready to jump on the next plane at any moment. Mm. Um, so I just, you know, I, I remember I, I had a beautiful partner here in Byron Bay when I was 28. We were engaged to be married and she really wanted to have children. And, you know, I had the white picket fence. So it's a great dream. I'd, I'd gone from smuggling gemstones all over the world to literally having, importing gemstones to Australia by that stage and, and supplying a lot of gift shops and places like the Crystal Castle all over the country. Um, but that I still just wasn't ready to settle down and, mm. I, and I had to call off that wedding, which was traumatic for everyone involved and, and jumped on a plane again and went travelling again until I was... <laughs> That's your like, answer for everything, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> jump on a plane. When in doubt, jump on a plane. Jump on a plane. Just or dance, or both. In those days, you could dance on planes. But, um, but yeah, I, it, it then uh, I kept saying to my partner at that time, that 35 would be a good age to, you know, get married and <laughs> yeah. have kids. 35, I thought. So yeah. I was sort of putting a time. But even at 35, I, there was no way. I was just living every bachelor's dream then, all through my 30s. And then um, but I think it was just when I got into my 40s, I got the, the male version of Clucky. And that was the irony of life. You know, when I had the right girl, I wasn't ready. And now that I was ready, I couldn't find the right girl. Because I made this great 
joke, which again, pardon to the, the audience for my sense of humour, you'll get used to it or over it. Or, or <laughs> But I made a pact no well, more. If you, if you don't like it, just yeah, get yeah. on the plane so and this fuck is off. Nothing, yeah, exactly. <laughs> nothing personal to anyone, but no more singers, dancers, actresses or models. Yeah. That was it. I, I'd, I'd done that. So I was really, but then I was really, there's a funny thing, which, uh, which again, to the ladies in the audience, don't be offended. Uh, or if you do, don't call me, call Dave. Uh, but... <laughs> But um, yeah, there's, there's a great time. I can't remember where it was. That guy does that whole graph thing because because then I started really looking for you know successful, motivated, entrepreneurial women like, like yeah, myself. Okay, so a quick a quick warning to any ladies listening. Yeah. I know exactly what graph is about yeah. to talk about. So yeah. please tune out for the next minute. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very hard, and I'm sure men are the same. It's very hard to find everything in one package. Yeah. So you want that person who's really fun and outgoing and exciting yep. and hot and sexy and spontaneous, and then but you want someone who's really got got it together and you know they're they're business minded and they're entrepreneurial and motivated. And they're dirty and they in know, the bedroom, but they yeah, know how to cook. Yeah, yeah. And they'll, they'll yeah. clean up after themselves. They help you in the yard. You want all that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and that is very rare to find everything in one package that you want. And, that, and I've learned that now. So Laney, when I when we met, we were forty five, never been married, never had kids, and. Um, and you know, basically, we we have all of that together. What we've created in five years has been incredible in terms of what we do together, manifesting. But we, I didn't realise it at forty-five. In though, Laney is fit as a fiddle, and even uh, doctors have said all of that. But, but it was too late for us to have children. Mm. So, but Laney loves animals more than humans, and I love travel more than life itself. So it's, we 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 are total opposites. Travelling animals, and she's got fifteen horses, five dogs at any one time. So you, you never mentioned the graph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, never, that's basically that graph. I think it's 10% in that middle of, yeah. you know, basically the but hot, what is the hot, sexy and the, I don't know, the... the bitch or something. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember what it was. It, it was, was really some, fun. It Google was, it if you like, yeah, uh, even look, if you want to hate something. But it, it's, it very is, it's, it's, it's very sexist. It's very sexist and I don't yeah. approve of that on this, <laughs> yeah. uh, on this podcast yeah. and most men will probably know what it is because it's been sent probably yeah. to every man yeah. around. Yeah, but I'm sure the women have their version too. I'm sure so, they so do. I love that. This is for the ladies in the audience. There's a great job. Hot and crazy. Hot and crazy. The hot access and the yeah, crazy access yeah, and, yeah. And, and all in between. That's yeah, it. there's a there's a, another joke that I, I like. What's the difference between a sensitive new age guy and a male chauvinist pig? Ooh. About six beers. <laughs> yeah, very good. <laughs> there's one for the ladies. Hey, I, you said that um, um, you thought 35 would be the right time to get married. I remember my. My mum had me at 17, mm, so wow. incredibly, you know, yeah. she was pregnant at See, 16. my parents were the opposite. They, they were 30 when they had me, the first child. Yeah, wow. In those days, long time. Yeah, yeah. so that, yeah, they, they went, well, that was, that was the thing back then, you mm. know, like, so I was, yeah. I was born in 69, my mum was pregnant uh, at 16, had me at 17, and I remember thinking as I got to about 17, I thought, no, nah, that's probably a little bit, about 23, 23 yep. would be about the time I reckon I'll get married and have a kid. Yep. And then that passed, and I thought, because by then I was on the road touring with, with Manpower. So oh, yeah, at 23, right. I thought, there's no way I'm getting married yeah, and, yeah. and having a baby now. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was having too much fun. And then I thought, maybe 30. 30 yep. seems like the right time maybe to get married and have a kid. Yep. 30 passed. And then I thought, 35. Maybe 35 is the right time. Yeah. So it ended up me being around about 42 when yeah. I got married and had a yep. kid. Yeah, yeah. So it's just funny how your, your thoughts on where you think you're going to go in your life and how yep. shit just changes, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. I'm exactly. sure you know, your life hasn't turned out the way you thought it would be. It's taken you on adventures and taken yeah. you down roads and, you know, and travels and places and things that you never thought you'd ever see. Yeah, exactly, and, and still does, which I never stops. Again, I'm, as soon as the world opens up again, because none of us saw this COVID 
mm. operation. My God, but yeah, I, I'll probably be on the on the first plane. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so, and even if I have to take a vaccine, or if if I had to weigh up, you know, you know, can I never travel again, or do I take a vaccine? I'm taking a vaccine. Travel yeah, okay. for me is more important than life itself. And, and it's an interesting one that one. You know, it's talked about a lot in in this Byron Shire, probably more than most places in Australia or in the world. Yeah, the vaccine thing, the alternative thing, but um. You know, I, I was in Rio. I was, went to Rio Carnival. I got out of there five days before COVID, February of this year. Um, that would have been a COVID oh, cesspit. I, yeah, oh, exactly. That, they poor. I think it's why the word, well, America, India, and Brazil, Brazil are the yeah. three worst yeah. hit. I was just listening to, and I don't, I don't listen. I'm, I'm very Byron-esque when it comes. I don't listen to news, and I don't read newspapers, and I try not to get involved too much in the outside world because there's just a lot of fucking crap going on, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, but I did listen to something only yesterday saying how every week at the moment, or especially this last couple of weeks, one million new cases in America of COVID. Mm. One million. Yeah, yeah. And every day it's 1,500 deaths. Yeah. I was like, whoa. Well, I recently on my radio show on Bay FM, I inter interviewed a doctor, a friend of mine who's a musician and a doctor. So we talked both about his music and about COVID. And he was saying even as doctors, they can't, really understand or work out, you know, we're confused as the, the audience mm. or the general public of the world as to, you know, all these stories, but they don't know. It keeps mutating, it keeps changing. changing yeah. Some people get it and literally have very little effects. Some people, and not just old people, some people even in their 30s are getting it and being scarred for life. Like mm. literally their lungs are scarred, um, they lose their, their taste, their smell, and it ain't coming back. Mm. Yet other people, it's not even like a bad cold. Yeah. Um, whether Trump, Donald Trump ever actually had it or whether that was all just smoke and mirrors, <laughs> I don't know. Because then, oh, you know, Boris Johnson was in intensive care. Yeah. So who, it, it, and again, it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting, you know, the whole conspiracy theory around it all. It's just, the whole world has gone nuts. I think it's been mm. going nuts gradually for a while, but it really mm. came to a head recently. Yeah, and the fact, look, we can't travel at the moment, as you said, mm. um, all the planes, uh, no one's allowed to go overseas, which means, I suppose, where where we're living, which is Byron Bay, yeah, we're seeing an incredible influx of because now the borders have just opened with Melbourne and yeah. although South Australia is still closed at the moment, but everyone is coming to Byron Bay to visit, and yeah. everyone's buying real estate in Byron Bay. Yeah, Byron Bay is going or, or renting. Nuts. Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, I think- um, Rentals have gone up through the roof. 30%, I believe, yeah, yeah. and probably the property price is the same. Prices um, are going just, crazy. Just in this COVID time. And there's other interesting things. You know, this year, 2020, it's just so bizarre. So I was talking to someone the other day, not only the property prices, you know, used cars. I've also gone through the roof because there's no new cars can get yeah. into the country yeah. or not as quickly. I've got a mate of mine to. who's a um, a used car dealer. Yeah, and he said when that when that pardon me when that um, whole superannuation thing happened, where you could take ten grand out, yeah. you know, before the financial year, then another ten, 10 grand. After. Yep. He said all his cars mm. under ten grand. Yep. Walking out the window, he walking yep. out the door, he couldn't couldn't get them. Like yep. uh, everyone was just buying cars. Spoke to another mate of mine up on the Gold Coast only yesterday. He said, yes, tourism is suffering. He goes, mm. but you look at every other industry. He goes, the boat industry is going nuts. You yep. cannot buy. Everyone's buying boats. Well, because they're not, every, people realize, well, I'm not going to be traveling for a few years. I might boat. as well buy all the toys I need caravans. here. Caravans. Yeah, caravans. RVs. You can't get them. They've, they've all gone up in price. They've all gone up 23%. Plus, you just can't get them. There's waiting lists to buy caravans. There's waiting lists to buy boats. The people who are fixing boats are... are have got so much work on, they don't know what to do with it. Yep. There is just, 
the tourism industry has been hit pretty hard, mm. um, but there's a lot of industries that have just literally recorded their biggest months, like three, four months in a row. Every month just keeps getting bigger and more crazy. Yeah. Well, um, because um, I had this, uh, my car needed a new drive shaft, so I had to get this hire car. The hire car lady was telling me that, that the hire car companies, when COVID first hit, you know, everything went into lockdown and they were a bit, bit like the airlines. So they just had fleets of cars sitting, doing nothing. So they were selling off a lot of their fleets. Yet now there's this boom of tourism in Australia back again. So basically everyone's hiring or tr wanting to hire cars. There's mm. not enough cars. Mm. Yet they can't get new cars into the country quick enough. For, so it's, it's just a really interesting time to, to, you know, again, there's a lot of people being really adversely affected. Um, but yeah, you just got to watch and wonder and it's, it's, there's just so many things affected by this. That could be the title of your next book, Crazy Shit in Australia. Well, it'll have to be because we, none of us can jump on a plane again. <laughs> so yeah, my third book, I did sign a third book to the, the publishers. When I signed a three book deal, which was, um, which was going to be Gem Dealing Gypsy. But then I've now pulled out of that whole publishing deal. I've got um, 1,500 of each book, the first two books, left in storage right now, which I'm trying to work out what to do with. I'm actually open to all ideas. Certainly any listeners out there have ideas, whether that's charity, because, again, it was a passion project for me. Mm. Um, unfortunately, the, book, the stories in the book aren't really suitable for children's hospitals because that's something, obviously, I'd love to, you know, for Christmas, give all the kids a book, but I don't think they... <laughs> maybe it is a good book for kids to read because it's what not maybe to do in is. a lot of cases because yeah. you will end up in hospital, in jail, or in love or in hate, yeah. <laughs> one or the other. But, um, but yeah, I'm... Um, it's fun. I had a funny one recently. I have an agent in India for the book series because it, it did go global. And, and they they apparently have interest from Bollywood in turning the Traveller's Tales series into a Bollywood production. Wow. Which sounds so quirky that... Uh, oh, man, nothing again, surprises me there with that's uh, right, well, Bollywood and... In India. Yeah. I, I love... Uh, I spent a lot of time in India over that time because Jaipur is the, the gemstone capital of the world, really. It's the pink city, beautiful. And I always used to say everyone should go to India at least once in their life. If you haven't been there, it's... I've never been to India. Oh, it's like going back in time. Mm. Especially it was then. You know, I was living there 30 years ago. Whereas, you know, now I think it's much more up marketing parts but there's such a diversity there's the rich and the poor yeah. and I mean extreme wealth and extreme poverty yeah. but the poor people even are so happy that's that's what it really the the humbleness the the beauty you know there's the beggars in the street are still uh, still big smiles on their faces, mm. um, which is really noble. And it is like going back in time in, in when you go to some of those back streets of, of those, um, those areas. Um, you know, it's, it's still cobblestone or dirt and, mm. and uh, humpies and huts. And I think it's, um, have you read Shantaram? Yeah, 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 yeah great yeah, book. Great book. Mm. Um, mm. For those of you that haven't read that book, it's a massively yeah. thick book. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it takes a while to get through it, but... Yeah. Um, What's the name of the guy? Um, uh, Roberts. Uh, David, David, Gregory David Roberts. Gregory, or like. Gregory David Roberts. That's um, right. He's Australian the author of the author, book. Yeah. yeah, Australian author. He ended up, um, I think... He was on run and ran, escaped from jail in Australia and ended up basically hiding in the hiding slums out in of the Calcutta slums, yeah. and um, yeah, ended up uh, sort of changing his life around. Practicing medicine over there. Sort yeah. Of, uh, half illegally living in slums and you know worked for gangsters. And, yeah. Um, yeah what, what, that's a crazy book. Yeah. Um, he was on um, Oprah, promoted his book. 
Um, I think he did a second book. I don't think it had the same, no. quite the same success as yeah. his first one. But that is a, a cracker of a book if you haven't had a chance to read uh, to read that one. I'm just I've just got it out. I've got it sitting over there on my table. I want to um, to remind myself to read it again. It was yeah. so awesome. Second books are always hard. It was the same. A broad, broken bust the first series in this book series. We won um, some award in London when it first came out. We were in the top five of some awards thing. And, um, and then we was followed up crazy shit and age that was supposed to be, you know, it was going to be bigger and better, especially with all the branding and everything that they wanted to do. And then uh, COVID's put it all uh, into a back seat now. Mm. But um, even the same Marching Powder, I know Rusty Young very well, who wrote that book, which is also an incredible book in terms of exciting travel What's stories. What's it called? Marching Powder? Marching Powder. So okay. he put himself in jail in Bolivia. Uh, to write this book about what the jail system is like over there because it is like it's like a village in itself it's got its own economy mm. it's really a very interesting book but his second book Colombiano I don't think had the same sort of pickup as Marching Powder went global so both Shantaram and Marching Powder have been picked up um, with movie rights. I think it was Johnny Depp actually may yeah, have picked up both that. of them. Yeah. Um, and that, that is probably the only way an author does get a decent whack of change. But whether they ever get made is the question because that's been a long time talked about mm. and a lot of those films are a long time talked about. I don't know if that'll be Bollywood. I think that's more Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I like the Bollywood angle. I still, I still reckon you've got to get that... Um, that uh Travelling Gypsy Gem, what are you going to call gem it? Gem Dealing Gypsy. Gem Dealing Gypsy. Yeah, that, that's, that's that's the the book that, uh, yeah, that's sort of, I suppose, the, the autobiography that I... I can I imagine Johnny Depp playing you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I did have that there, that Jack Sparrow look about me. Those, yes, so. you definitely did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, um, if people want to listen to you, they can always tune in to uh, Monday mornings yeah, on Bay FM. FM. So bayfm.org, so it is does stream, so it goes global. Mm. Um, so, yeah, www.bayfm.org. And the book series is all on www.bayfm.org. MattTowner.com. So M-A-T-T-O-W-N-E-R. Matt Towner, I love your work. Thank you for coming along. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. This has been another episode of the Bold and the Beautiful podcast. Davella has left the building.